please welcome to the Apple Store Covent Garden in London tonight's host, Daryl Eastley. Good evening. I, I feel like I should walk out and come back in again. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Um, well, my name is Daryl Eastley, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Apple Store here in Covent Garden uh, for a very special Meet the Filmmakers. Um, I think the piece of music uh, that has been filmed needs no introduction within the room. Uh, written within between 1977 and 79, uh, The Wall is Roger Waters' world-renowned masterpiece. Uh, the film, Roger Waters' The Wall, was shot during the Wall Live World Tour, which ran for three years between 2010 and 2014. The show was seen by over 4 million fans at 219 performances, and it became the highest-grossing tour by any solo artist in history. Premiered at the Toronto Film Festival last year, and fresh from its global groundbreaking one-night-only screening in September, uh, the film uh, is being released uh, digitally uh, via iTunes uh, on the 16th of November. Uh, before I introduce the directors to the stage, I'd like you to have a look at the trailer. I used to have this dream. That I'd murdered somebody. Dad flown across the ocean. That child in me took responsibility for everything that happened. Gentlemen, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome to the stage the film's directors, Mr. Sean Evans and Mr. Roger Waters. Well, good evening, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and can I say, um, I've seen it about four times now, what a, a thoroughly splendid moving entertainment it, it really is. Uh, has any, everyone seen it in the room? No? Well, you have an absolute treat in store. So my, my first question is, is to, to both of you. I mean, how did you feel about bringing such an iconic work back to the screen uh, for the, the 21st century? 
Sure. <laughs> well, we, I think there were a couple of things. One thing was that we weren't try to, trying to remake the version that was done by Alan Parker. Sure. By, by no means were we trying to go where that one went. The other thing was that we weren't trying to replicate the experience of seeing the show live. There's absolutely no way to replicate that experience. I mean, I've seen the show hundreds of times. Yeah. It's an amazing experience. The heat and the sound and Roger being a maniac on stage and the visuals and the spectacle. And th there's just no replicating being in the room. So what we tried to do was do something else, give an experience that was something that you wouldn't get from being in the room, you know, an additional experience. And was it always the plan to film the shows when the, the tour was started? We had no plan. <laughs> we, we, it, came, it, it, it evolved very organically. The, the tour was a success. When we were building it, we had no idea what people would think. Right. So as it was going on and we saw it, and we saw it in practicality, in person, we said, we, we need to film this. This needs to be documented in a very cinematic way. Sure. Not just your typical live shoot. Sure. And was there sort of pressure to do just a concert film, just Roger Waters in concert? Pressure? No. And I, I think that you don't have any interest in doing just a concert film. It's not very much in your personality to do something like that. No. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Waters. <laughs> um, first of all, I mean, I'm absolutely intrigued. How, how did you become involved, Sean, in the, in the whole process? Uh, we started working together. It's almost 10 years ago now. Right. Rod, Roger had written an opera and it was uh, to be performed in Rome, and it was a concert performance, uh, which means that it's not staged. It means that the singers are in formal wear at the front of the stage, orchestra on stage, but because Roger is Roger and so visual, he wanted to tell the story as well as present a very strong visual element mm. to it. So I was, in, I was brought on board to do that part of the performance. Sure. And then uh, we subsequently worked on the Dark Side of the Moon tour together, Yep. Prior to the wall, and then I was asked back to work on the wall. And when you came to doing the wall again, Roger, I mean, it was the first time since 81 in concert, and I think there was only ever 40 shows or, or, or something back then. I mean, how differently did you approach the staging, considering the advances in technology and, and everything? Uh, how did we approach it differently? Um, well... You mean, uh, well, obviously, uh, techniques have changed a lot since 1980, uh, mainly with um, projection techniques. Now, um, why are you grinning at me like that? I'm listening <laughs> intently. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, film uh, projectors are much smaller than they used to be, and they no longer have little welders inside there, you know, with, didn't they used to have arcs, didn't they? back in the old days. And so that's hugely different. They're much, they're, it's, it's much better. So we can tell the story much more um, eloquently in terms of all of the techniques. Uh, I don't know what else to say. But, really but a, a lot of the stage design that Mark Fisher did in 1980 was the same. Like they went through a lot of uh, different materials to try and make the bricks with sure. all these new modern materials. No, use the old stuff, keep it the same. And virtually everything that was in the original show was more or less incorporated. Things such as uh, Gerald Scarf's animations, they all seem... But what did you have to do to bring them up to 
scratch for the 21st century. Everything had to be rescanned and recleaned and long technical process to, I mean, because we're, in 1980 it was projected um, three Academy frames that are basically SD. And we were projecting, in the end, 15K wide, which is 15 times the resolution of the TV that's in your home. So to get everything to look that crisp is a job, to look crisp that, at that size and resolution. That's quite a chore, yeah. Mm. And, and, I mean, the film is quite extraordinary in the way that there's, there's sort of several things going on. One is the concert itself is there. Uh, two, and we'll come back to this in a while, we'll see a clip of Comfortably Numb later, where it's sort of beautiful rumination on fans and artists' relationship. Um, but the thing that really struck me is this whole, the personal story, the, your personal journey in there, Roger. I mean, how did that come about uh, for being so strongly in the film? Well, I think it was after we'd, we'd shot all the concert footage, and were we not halfway through the editing process? And I, anyway. So, somebody had the idea, either him or me, I can't remember, uh, to make a, a little road movie about me going to visit my grandfather's grave and also the memorial to my father. My grandfather was killed uh, in the Battle of the Somme on 14th of September 1916 and my father was killed on February the 18th, 1944. And so, uh, both those losses play a big part in my life and development and so it seemed like a good idea to as I had always intended to visit my grandfather's grave to do it and that we should film that journey and so we elongated the journey and made it a whole trip from northern France down to southern Italy and various people magically appear uh, in this old Bentley that I'm driving down there friends, my children, people, uh, in order that we can uh, illuminate the story even more of how the building of walls between us uh, is a malign influence on our lives uh, that causes us to wonder if maybe the people on the other side of these walls might be bad people who we need to kill. And quite often we decide that they are, and so we go and try and kill them. And so the film is largely about how, in my opinion, that's a really, really, really bad idea. And the whole idea that we can spend the rest of um, the short time that this planet has. When I say short, I mean, it's not that short. It could be a billion years, but it is finite. And why we, w we should want to spend the rest of that time in a state of perpetual warfare, uh, killing each other is beyond me. So I'm trying to ad address that as a problem. I'm, I'm not alone, obviously. There's millions and millions, probably hundreds of millions of us all over the world who all agree that it's not a very good idea. Unfortunately, the people who are in power think it is a good idea, and so they keep doing it again and again and again and again and again. So that's what the movie's about. Um, I'm beginning to ramble, as I know you know, but in my defense, I would say that I've been doing interviews since 11 o'clock this morning, and I'm a little bit, uh, yeah, thank you. 
But, um, I mean, it, it's interesting, because I, I don't know if I knew about your grandfather. Obviously, your father is, is well documented across the albums, but that really came as a, a surprise in the film. And there's something that, that when you see it, that the, the film has, is, is the way that the poignancy never tips over into anything, you know, it never becomes sen over, overly sentimental or mawkish. So did you have a filter, just being able to sort of juxtapose some of those sort of really personal scenes with humour, uh, with landscape? It's a very skillful thing. Did, did you have a sort of... Um, we just tell the truth, right? Yeah. I remind myself of Bill Clinton now. I once saw Bill Clinton at a charity do in Lincoln Center in New York. Sorry, I interrupted you. That, and, um, and it was for a, a charity that called Save the Music that was run by VH1, an American TV music station. And uh, the charity is to provide musical instruments to disadvantaged black kids in the Bronx. And I wrote a chart for Brick 2, and we performed it, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, Bill Clinton was there, and he made a speech, uh, which was, I, I stood there transfixed watching him making this speech, sort of amazed, because you know what Clinton's like. He's like, you can see he's, he's Bill Clinton, and he does that thing, and he does it effortlessly. And so a bit later, they said, the president would like to meet you. President Clinton would like to meet you. And I went, oh, jolly good. So I bushed backstage, and there he is. And I went up, and I said, hello. And he said, well, you know. And uh, I was at a loss, really, of what else to say. Um, and I'm sure if I'd paused for a few seconds, he would have put me at my ease, because that's what he does. Apparently, that is one of his prime assets, is he's really good at working with ordinary people like me. And, uh, but I nipped in quick before he could say anything. I said, I just watched the speech you made. I said, it was absolutely stunning. How do you do that? And he looked at me for a minute and he went, I just tell the truth. And I thought, fuck me, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you. As we're here and we're not shopping. <laughs> I think that there definitely feels a lot of truth in the film. And, and um, the, the scene as well, one of the standout scenes is where you're explaining uh, the battle where your father died to the uh, French barman. There's a French barman who can't speak English. Uh, and you're doing it with shot glasses and ashtrays. And how did that scene come about? Lots of tequila. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't water, you were doing it real. Well, he, he was directing it, I was acting, and uh, Brett Turnbull, our DP, figured out the rest of it. And uh, we had an actor there to play the barman, and I said to him, what's your name? He said, François Monsieur. And I went, good, you don't speak English, all right, and he went, yeah, all right. I went, no, 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 you haven't got that. You don't speak English, okay? And he went, comment? And I went, good, you've got it. That's all you need to know. And then I think he said action, and then I did all that. I've no idea why. I hadn't rehearsed anything. So it's a one take. It's a bit of improvisation, actually. Yeah, I, yeah, I uh, caught that. A lot of the scenes were like that. Like, we had these scenarios, and we had subjects 
to be talked about, and then it was Roger and whoever he was with ad-libbing, just going. Because again, one of your oldest sort of school friends, Andrew Rawlinson, known as Willa, you form a sort of double act for, for sections of the film, a bit like a sort of Pete and Dud uh, in the car. I mean, again, was that all just completely unscripted? For the most part, yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> sorry. No, I was, just, I was, which one am I? <laughs> Pete. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> Even though Willow's about four inches taller than I am, I'm prepared to be dud if, you have, if I have to be somebody. Yeah, no, that was all unscripted, yeah. Just a conversation. But it was a lovely link. I mean, that thing, the, the, you know, the past and the future. Uh, and there's this sort of serenity to those scenes, which obviously is offset then by 250,000 people screaming and stukas going overhead and... Uh, and all of that. Uh, what, what's the significance of tunnels? You talk about, I hope we don't have to go through, or will there be tunnels? Was there any...? Well, many years ago, Willa and I drove... Um, well, we drove a lot around Europe, but the first time we drove, we went in my mother's Austin A30, and we, and we drove down through France, and then we drove down to Italy. Well, you have to go through tunnels, that's all. It's as simple as that. That bit of road between Nice and um, Genoa has got a lot of tunnels. It's a very, <laughs> very amusing scene. Um, so the, one of the most poignant scenes is obviously going to the beachhead. Um, and I was uh, sort of amazed you'd never been there before, considering you've sort of been to Italy quite a bit. And I looked on a map of how near Pompeii was to it. And did you never, you always never wanted to go previously? No, I had been to Anzio. Right. I'd, I'd been to the beach in Anzio, but which we visit in the film. But the place I hadn't been was the Commonwealth War Graves Commission Memorial Garden in Casino, which is in the valley um, below, the, below Monte Cassino, the monastery, uh, which is where the you know, big German redoubt was and where the Allies got stuck. They tried to cross the river a number of times and got forced back. I'd never been to that garden, which is where the tablet is that has my father's name on it. So that was the place that I really wanted to visit, and which we did. And, and funnily enough, we were there, we filmed there for a whole day, right? And uh, at the end of the day, the word had got out, and there were a few hundred um, Italians hanging around outside, and a couple of TV cameras, and I stopped and did a short interview. And there's this uh, British expat living um, somewhere on the East Coast, about level with Rome, and his name's Harry Schindler, and he's 94 years old this year. And he saw that TV interview, and he had served um, at Anzio in the Sherwood Foresters, a different regiment than my father's. But he had been about a mile away when my father was killed on that morning uh, in February 1944. And he looked, he watched this thing on the news and he went, he said, oh, I might be able to help that chap. He said, he's obviously needs closure, you know, it is search for his father. And uh, he's from somewhere a bit north of here, I All would right. guess. Probably close to Bethnal Green. Anyway, he's a, he's a lovely man. He's become a great friend of mine. So he made it his business. He said, of course, I'd never heard of the Pink Floyds. So I'd stop at the Beatles. <laughs> 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 it 
which I thought was rather sweet. Um, anyway, he did, and he, f he found out exactly where my father was killed, so within a few yards. Right. And he then persuaded the good people of the local town, which is Aprilia, to build a monument to my father and to erect it in uh, the playground of a local elementary school. And it's, and it's there. So I went there on uh, the 18th of February 2014, which is exactly 70 years after my father was killed. Um, there was a big do with local dignitaries and a brass band and all of that, and it was very, very moving. And so I thank Harry Schindler for that. In fact, he's here. He's not here <laughs> shopping. I don't think Harry does a lot of shopping in the he Apple He can't store. be with us tonight. But, uh, but he is here in London, and so we will be taking him out to lunch tomorrow or the next day, as is our wont when we're here. I mean, you say you, you were, uh, you know, you said offering you some closure. I mean, you talk about the dream in there, which is quite significant, that the child felt responsible uh, for, for everything. I mean, do you think the child has gone now? Do you think this film does offer the final closure or had the closure come years previously? Um, no, 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 those, those stories never end. They, they, it may be that they even transcend generations, but I think if, if you lose a parent or a child, that is, stays with you certainly for the rest of your life maybe even beyond, I don't know. But uh, yeah, my father's story will be with me until the day I die. I think one of the, the, the real key scenes in the film is where you're, you're talking about the American veteran that came up to you and said, uh, your father will be proud of you. Um, how did it feel when, when, when he came up and said that to you? Well, it was it was um, unnerving and moving. Uh, this, I have, uh, when we did the wall shows all over the world, we have uh, 20 vets from whatever country we're in at the time uh, come to the show and I meet them at uh, half time and just chat about anything they want to chat about, really. And uh, this was one guy who was um, older, he was a Vietnam vet, and who said this to me, grabbed hold of my hand. This is all in the movie. As you know, whoever you are, the one person who went and saw it, yeah. And, uh, and he wouldn't let go of my hand. He looked at me in the eyes, and then he suddenly said, your father would be proud of you. And I still get a big lump about here, e even remembering that moment. And then we were going back on stage that minute, so I, I had to walk back and go on stage and... and start singing Hey You and get on with the rest of the show. But I was uh, very moved and, and quite upset as well by that. Uh, it's a tremendously moving moment. Now, uh, Roger talked uh, about the show. Uh, obviously, one of the key parts of the film is the show, and we have a, a clip coming now, um, a short clip of uh, a song you may be aware of called Another Brick in the Wall Part Two.
course, I would have shown a clip with the kids if it was me, but it's not. I mean, that is quite astonishing because for those of you who saw the wall live this time, to, to bring the local sort of street dance troops out, uh, you talk about sort of, you know, the, the, what's it, the miserable, fucked up 1980 Roger in, in, in the thing. I mean, I can't imagine you would have condoned that in 1980 because you seem to be having a wonderful well, yeah, but time th with that's them. A, they're not street dance kids. They're, they're, the whole point of them is that they're disenfranchised kids. They're kids that have nothing. The, the, the call is to get kids from a poor neighborhood cool, to right. give them a chance to come up on stage. And some of them are like straight up gangsters. I mean, some of them are really troubled kids. Really? Yeah, they can't take any direction at all, but it's great. They, they love it. It's an amazing experience for them. Sure, sure. I mean, referring to the street dance, I mean, just the way they're all you know, going for it. It's a very joyous experience. Well, in fact, you're focusing on one group of kids and they were from Hartford, Connecticut, and they happen to have been drilled really well by a great teacher and motivational speaker, wouldn't you say, who'd got those kids to do, to create this amazing um, uh, dance sequence and choreography. But they were, a, a, they're an absolute exception to the general rule, where, which is kids who are basically going like that, you know, for for however long it takes, but who are nevertheless engaged and um, get a great deal out of coming on stage and performing with us for a few minutes. Sure, sure. I mean, it's an incredibly uh, uplifting moment. And let's have another incredibly uplifting moment, uh, and we'll talk about this song uh, afterwards. Uh, here's a little clip from Comfortably Numb. strange to watch such short clips. Sorry? It's very strange to watch such short clips. Sure. It's very odd. Sure. I mean, how do you feel? I mean, you know, Comfortably Numb is possibly one of the greatest known anthems in the whole of popular music. And whenever I hear it, it takes me back. The old, you know, hairs on the neck, everything like that. I mean, how, how, you know, you wrote it. Do you feel that every time you play it? Yeah. Great. But one of the interesting things is, I mean, I was very fortunate. Obviously, I was in my pram at the time was to see um, the wall at Earl's Court in, in 1980. And obviously, you were in character, back to the wall, singing away. And now this sort of total embrace 
of everything that's going on. Um, w when did the point come when, when you, you turned from the back to the wall to, to the embrace? When I turned from... Well, you had, you know, as a performer, you know, you, yeah. you, you had your back to the wall and then turn around. I mean, you couldn't be more rising to the challenge of performing to, to the big arena. Right. Which was quite a sea change in how you'd been. Yes. It was saying when. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I've become more and more comfortable uh, working on stage as the years have gone by. I used to be... Um, more tortured and more frightened than I am now, and uh, I love I love working with an audience now. Um, as you can tell if you watch this thing, uh, I really enjoy it. I I feel a real empathy with the crowd that I never felt in the old days. Um, maybe I don't know why it is. Because um, I mean, if people are hanging on, and that that lovely thing. I mean, a the 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 youth in the audience. I mean, it's not just fifty-year-old blokes nodding away and, and plus nothing wrong with 50 year old blokes nodding away I hasten well, to well, add I don't know. Um, but, but you know all, all the kids with their rock t-shirts on yeah. and I mean the way people just know every word like it's yeah. it, I mean it, I, I was watching it uh, almost in tears because of, of what it meant to everybody I mean it must be spectacular for you yeah the audiences are from all over but they're often like the audience we watched in Brick 2 I think they're from Croatia aren't they uh, some from Croatia, some from Quebec, some from go. Athens. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're kind of a mixture. Yeah, the audiences are from all over. Sure. So, what next? What next for? Uh, we've got the, the 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 film is coming out next week. Lots of different versions, soundtracks, the whole thing. Um, Sean, I mean, will you are you going to continue to work together on projects? Are we going to continue to work together on projects? <laughs> I thought uh, we were going out for a Lebanese. Yeah, I think so. Maybe <laughs> well, some there's Lebanese. The first project. There's maybe then a little already. vacation, little rest, maybe. Sure. <laughs> little breather. So, um, and what next for you, Roger, after the Lebanese? Um, I'm working on a new album, and uh, who knows, my, my, that is definitely going to be finished and be out next year, I'm sure. And do you think it... it you, you would have the full show with it, uh, again, if you take the new album out? Would you do a, a theatrical presentation? Yeah, definitely a theatrical presentation. And probably be a mixture of the new album and old songs. Because nobody wants to go to a show and hear nothing but new stuff. You know, we've all tried it. Neil Young, me. Actually, I've never tried it, I don't think. You've but you know what happens. And yes. people go, well, yeah, 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 but, you know, give us a couple of old songs. And um, so why not? Yeah, but definitely. It, yeah, that's the whole point of doing it would be to make a theatrical presentation because that's what I've done my whole career. And, it, and I, I like to it. And I like working with him. And I think we could do another one that could be, it can't be, it won't be like that because no. you can't do that again. And uh, it won't be bigger, but it hopefully will be moving and it will be about something and uh, it'll have good songs and uh, we'll see. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, to listen to Mr. Sean Evans.
Thank you kindly. And Mr. Roger Waters.